Hey, this is Phil Vaughn. Welcome to the Evolve Podcast, a few minutes each week focused on learning how to follow Jesus. New episodes drop every Sunday. You can also find written content at lifebeginswithdeath.org. If you'd like to support the work of the blog and the podcast, then visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Phil Vaughn. Or you can just hop on the blog and follow the link to Patreon. It's a way to support the work and uh, encourage it uh, with a small donation each month. All right, with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into this week's episode. Hey, glad you made it for week three of Ruth as we push toward Christmas and allow this story to give us a glimpse of uh, what Advent and waiting is all about. It's the middle of December, and Donna and I spent a little bit of time doing some errands as we get ready for Christmas holiday. It's a, just uh, about a week away, Christmas. And as we were out and about in some of the busiest places in the south side of Denver, we encountered all kinds of people who were in a hurry, frustrated. Uh, you could see the tiredness on their faces, and maybe the frantic pace of their day. Most people I know want to experience something of God in the middle of this month. And here's what I wonder. I wonder if we can't learn to experience Him in the mundane, boring, frustrating moments of every day, if we'll experience Him when He shows up in grand ways. I mean, obviously, When Jesus was born, the people who should have been expecting a Messiah more than anyone else missed almost everything. And so, I wonder if that's true of me. I wonder if it's true of you as well. As we push toward the Christmas holiday and the experience of uh, Advent coming to full fruition, I wonder if you, I wonder if I have missed Jesus in the middle of all of the Uh, the frantic, boring, mundane, hectic moments of our days. And so take some time uh, to read through the book of Ruth quietly, thoughtfully. Just carve out some moments just to spend time with God and allow the words of this story to speak to your heart and maybe draw you into a place where you can hear God's voice more fully and more completely. Let's jump into episode three this week. If you've never read scripture, the book of Ruth is a great place to start. It's a very simple story. It's four chapters. You can read the whole thing in 15 minutes. We're going through it over several weeks, and it's just a story. Here's what I love about the book of Ruth. It says this in the program. Ruth's story is a lot like our stories. Ruth's story is about a normal family just trying to get it done, just trying to make their way through life. And in Ruth's family, Naomi's family, they're just dealing with the ups and the downs of life, the difficulties, the pains, the struggles, and they're just trying to make it through. I love the story of Ruth because it's just like our stories. It could be that when you read the Bible, mostly, you're reading all of these incredible things that God does in people's lives, and you wonder, what's going on? How come God doesn't do that for me? I mean, if this is how God treats people, how come none of those amazing, incredible, supernatural miracles happen in my life? What's going on with it? I mean, you know, God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. 
Wouldn't that be incredible for God to show up in your living room and speak to you, give you the message you've been wanting? Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. Not so cool, but still pretty incredible. Peter walks on water and you think, you know, I tried that. I just sink. How come God doesn't relate to me or the people I know in the same ways today that he did in the Bible? Maybe you have a friend that says, you know what? God told me. God told me this. God told me that. And you think, well, I guess he did. He's so busy talking to you, he's not talking to me. How come I don't hear the voice of God the way so many people seem to? Why is that the case? Listen close. Most of us experience God in our boring, everyday, get it done, go to work, run errands, pick up the kids kind of life. Most of us experience God in the midst of everyday moments, just like the story of Ruth. And as we read this story, we're reminded that God is in the middle of all of those everyday moments. The moments when you're just trying to get to your cube without having to listen to her again. The moments when you're trying to make your way through the traffic or you think, why did I go to the mall today? All of those moments, God is in the middle of. And the story of Ruth reminds us that not only is God in the middle of it, he's active, he's alive, he's doing his thing, and it really is miraculous. It really is supernatural. I mean, it's no coincidence that when Ruth goes out to get food for her and Naomi, that she shows up in this field of all of the fields she could go to that belongs to Boaz. God is at work orchestrating the events of their lives. It's no mistake, it's no coincidence that Ruth could have the kind of love in her heart that would convince her to devote her life to Naomi. That's miraculous. It's miraculous when a spouse sets aside their agenda and loves their family well and decides that they will listen. Even after a long day at work, they will come home and participate and give to the family life. It's no small thing when somebody pulls out their checkbook and lets go of a chunk of money that had a tight grip on their heart. God is at work in the details of life. And it could be that as you're reading the book of Ruth, you're reminded that it doesn't take an angel showing up, giving a message. It doesn't take the parting of the Red Sea for you to believe that God is active and alive, that he loves you, and he's deeply concerned about the details of how your life is coming together. In fact, reading the book of Ruth reminds us that God is doing that very thing. And I wondered, what would it be like how would our lives be different if we fully understood that it's in the everyday moments of life that God does some of his best work? It's in these tiny moments where God shows up and changes the course, shapes somebody's heart. What if we believed that? What if we lived our lives in that way? Let me explain it this way, and maybe this will help. How many of you over the last few months have lived through a customer service nightmare. Let me see your hands. Come on, put them up, testify, wave them around a little bit. I know you're not ashamed of it. You would want to tell your story, don't you? You want to tell your story, you've told it. 
You've already told it to a dozen people. This is what they did to me. This is what happened. You've told this story. This is now being called, it's, it's even in this brand new category study recently, Arizona State University, they're calling it customer rage. And it's on the increase. It is growing. And you know what it's like when you have your phone and you're sitting in your house and you're saying, representative, right? <laughs> you know what that's like. Nobody comes in the room when I'm saying representative to the phone because I am grumpy. Don't get near me. I am, do not mess with me. And this is what it feels like. And you get through the 32 layers of if you live west of the Mississippi, press one or whatever it is. And you just can't believe that you're still on the phone. Here, here's what I'm going to do. The next time I get through this myriad of options and buttons and phone tree, as I listen to this mechanical voice talk to me, finally when the voice comes on the phone and says, customer service, how can I help you? Here's what I'm going to say. If you'd like to speak to a customer, <laughs> please press one. And just wait and if I hear a beep, then I'll talk. And if I don't hear anything, I'll say, I'm sorry, I did not hear your response. Because <laughs> I just want to turn the tables, right? Don't you? you? I know the frustration that you feel. I know the feeling that you have. You've paid the contract. You, you, you signed up. You just want what they said they would deliver. Even in this, this survey, this uh, study, Arizona State, they found out what is the product or service that you and I are most likely to lose it over. What would you guess? What would it be? The product or service that we're most likely to lose it over. What is it? I heard a few of you say it a little bit louder. Yeah, yeah. So a gentleman last night in the service yelled Comcast. So we want to <laughs> we want to avoid naming names. It's church, you know, we're just here to worship and learn and you got it right. The, the one thing that we are most likely to lose it over is, uh, is in fact, our TV service. Whether it's uh, Dish or, it doesn't matter, right? Wherever it comes from. Now think about this for a moment. Think about it. The thing you are most likely to get angry about and act, let's just say it how it is, very un-Christ-like, is entertainment. Right? Boy, that's a difficult place to be, isn't it? It's interesting. I have a friend who's in customer service. Here's what he told me. Working in customer service has almost made me lose my faith. I said, really? Tell me about that. He said, you know, it, it's, it's not that I deal with problems. I'm in customer service. That's why people call. He said, you know, and this is the truth, nobody calls to say thank you, right? Nobody, why would they, right? In, in fact, no, nobody calls uh, the satellite company to say, customer service, I've got you. That's right, you've got me. Let me get this straight. That piece of plastic on the side of my house, it communicates with a satellite that stays in geosynchronous orbit. Look it up, it's fascinating. It's a big word. And it is traveling thousands of miles an hour and it can send an HD image from space into my house live of the Broncos game. Is that right? Yes, sir, that's right. Well, I can't believe that works at all. <laughs> Thank you. I just wanted to say that that even worked five minutes today. I am amazed. No, no, they, we call and say, hey, it's a little fuzzy. 
It's, is there a, like a solar flare? What's going on? Can you fix that? That's what we do, right? That's what we do. And he said, it's not that I have to solve problems. That's not what bothers me. It's when people treat me with such hatred and unkindness. We can work it out together, but we don't have to talk like that with one another. Last week, we introduced you to a word. It was a Hebrew word, and it was central to the book of Ruth. In fact, let's be honest, it's central to the whole way of what it means to walk with God, know God, and how we relate to one another. You'll see it on the screen here. Here's the Hebrew word, but it is pronounced kesed. Say it with me again like we did last week, kesed. This is an incredible concept that we see all through the book of Ruth, and here's the definition. Loyal, loving kindness shown in a tangible way, especially when your HD signal is almost out. (laughs) Or especially when you fill in the blank. We would call it a time of desperate need, but we apply this to so many areas of our lives. This is what the book of Ruth is all about. This Hebrew word, kesed. It's this kindness that Ruth shows to Naomi when she says, I'm with you. You will not have to go through this alone. It's this kindness that when Ruth shows up in the field of Boaz last week in chapter 2, he says to her, I will take care of you. Come back to my field. And, and why? Ruth says, why are you being so kind to me? And Boaz explains, kesed. And he explains it this way. You have shown such kindness to Naomi. I will show such kindness to you. Because this Hebrew love, this Hebrew loving kindness, it layers. When we give it to someone, they are likely to give it back. When we give it to others, they turn around and give it to other people who didn't even know it was coming. It has an exponential, compounding nature. And this is what is bringing about this incredible result in the book of Ruth. And so Ruth finishes up her day, her first day in the field of gleaning and picking up harvest and taking it home. She shows it to Naomi, and Naomi says, where have you been? Where were you? And she explains, I was in a field today, and it belonged to a man named Boaz. And Naomi says, ah, Lord, he's looking out for us in these everyday moments of our life. He is taking care of us. What do you mean? And so she explains to Ruth that Boaz, and maybe you read this phrase last week, Boaz is in our family a guardian or a kinsman redeemer. What does that mean? Well, it's not a term that we use today. But in the Hebrew culture, in the Jewish world at that time, a guardian or a kinsman redeemer had a very specific role. When a woman Uh, or young woman, older woman, didn't matter, had been widowed, somebody from the family, the closest relative, had not the obligation but the possibility of stepping in and doing two very important things. The first would be to redeem the land that belonged to her husband that has now passed. Redeeming meaning buy it back, make it a part of the family again so that it didn't pass to another family for a period of time. The second thing that this man would do would be at least him or maybe someone in his family, marry this widow to provide an heir for the family so that the family can continue in lineage. Now, to be 
a guardian or a kinsman redeemer, there had to be a few very important components in place. The first is this. The kinsman redeemer had to be a close relative, the closest available. It came in order of priority. The closest was first. The second, this guardian redeemer had to be able, financially of means, have the ability to exercise that option, to buy the land back, to take care of her, maybe even her other children. So I had to be able. Third, close relative, had to be able. Third, had to be willing, had to be willing. It wasn't an obligation they had to fulfill. It had to be something that they wanted to do. And when Naomi hears that Boaz is a part of Ruth's life now, she hopes and she wonders, is this what God is up to? And chapter 3 that you read this week begins just like this. Listen to the first verse. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, hear the affection. You're my daughter now. I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. What she's saying is very clearly, what's happening now, it's working fine for now. But there's a future for both of us. And we need to figure that future out. And so she gives Ruth some very specific instructions. And here's what she says. I want you to go see Boaz because he's in the middle of the harvest and he will be about the business of threshing. Now you and I, we don't know a whole lot about harvest and farm life and threshing unless you grew up that way or maybe you have grand, or maybe, maybe you own a farm today, but not too many of us have that experience. When threshing was occurring, it happened all during the harvest. The people who were out in the fields would bring into a very specific field, usually near a very windy place, apart from all the big structures or all the big um, homes that were there, or even just around the corner from a bend that would create a prevailing wind. They would bring the barley harvest and dump it in a very specific place all day long. It would be a big pile of barley. Included in that barley would be weeds and chaff and stuff from the field, stuff that they wouldn't want. After harvesting all day, They would come near the barley and they would use this prevailing wind to their advantage, throwing the barley up in the air, letting it fall to the ground, up in the air. The wind would come along and take and remove from the barley everything that they didn't want, the chaff, the weeds, the stuff that did not become a part of the harvest. What would result would be two piles, one a big pile of barley and some distance from it, downwind, would be a pile of chaff and weeds that would later get burned up the next day. As a part of this harvest then, celebrations were occurring. Everyone would stay and everyone would work near the fields all day long, harvest during the day, threshing in the evening, and then they would cap off the day with a meal, a celebration meal. And this is where Boaz was. And so Naomi explains all of this to Ruth. Ruth would have no idea how this works in Israel, how this works in the town of Bethlehem. And so she gives her some very specific instructions. The first bit of instructions were these. Um, you need to go wash, Ruth. You need to go wash. You get this impression that Naomi was a very straight shooter. Or she lacked people skills. We can't really tell the difference. <laughs> it's obvious in the first chapter that she doesn't take into account Ruth's feelings. And it's obvious here that she doesn't mince words. And she says, look, I'm sending you on a very specific mission. Go take a bath. And after you take a bath, get dressed in your nicest outfit. And after you do that, put on some perfume, Ruth would not misunderstand Naomi's intentions. 
Ruth is not believing. Are you sending me back to help Boaz thresh? No, no. I understand what you're sending me for. And she tells her what to do. And she explains, when you get down to the threshing floor, go after it's dark, no one can see you. And as you come into the threshing floor, stand by the side and wait. Boaz will have finished his meal. And when he's done with his meal, he will come and he will lay down by the barley. Most of the wealthy owners did this to protect all of their harvest from the thieves. After Boaz lays down for the night, go near him, uncover his feet, and lay at his feet, and then wait. Now at that moment, it appears that Ruth goes about her mission, but Naomi gave some other instructions to Ruth. In fact, it's the only way that Ruth would have known what to do or what was about to happen, and that's exactly what occurs. Boaz. He has his day, he's hard at work, he threshes for the evening, and then he has a celebration meal with all of his workers, and he drinks, and he eats. In fact, one translation says at the end of this meal, his heart was merry. So he was feeling fine after this meal. And then he goes to lay down for the night and rest. And that's exactly what Ruth does. She waits, and she watches. And then she goes near him, and I'm sure he's snoring to beat the band, And she goes and she lays at his feet and then she uncovers him. In the middle of the night, here's what happens. In the middle of the night, verse 8, chapter 3. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. No kidding, right? Really? Startled him? How so? Well, his feet are cold, first of all. Something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. You know what it's like when you wake up in the middle of the night and you don't know what's going on. And he looks and he says this, who are you? And then she says this, I am your servant Ruth, she said. And then she says, read this statement slow. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are my guardian redeemer. You are the guardian redeemer, the kinsman redeemer of our family. At this moment, Ruth's move is incredibly bold. And if you don't understand Hebrew or Jewish culture, you might miss what's going on. Here's what she is saying to Boaz. With his cloak that's covered him, of course his cloak, and if you understand the Old Testament, you understand that his cloak or his garment represented his authority. It represented his position in the community. It represented his wealth. And when she says, spread your garment over me, she is, in fact, proposing marriage to Boaz and here's what she's saying I meet you in the middle of the night a place where this anybody sees me this will kill my reputation this bold move I'm making Boaz here's what I'm saying to you if you will have me I'm yours if you will take me I belong to you And Boaz hears her, and he's moved. And here's what he says. The kindness that you're showing now is greater than the kindness you showed before. What does that mean? It's greater than the kindness that you showed to Naomi. He even says, and apparently there's some age difference between them. He says, you've not run after younger men that would be maybe more appealing to you. You have come to me so that you can benefit, take care of Naomi and the family. This is... A bold, humble, generous 
Kessid move on behalf of Ruth. And then he finally says, um, there's some details to get worked out. We'll talk about that next week. And in those details, you need to know that I will, I will take care of you and your family. And I will see that it's done. So even then, he desires to protect her reputation. So he says, wait until morning. Don't leave now. If you leave the threshing floor now, people will assume all sorts of things that aren't true. You have a great reputation. Let's keep it intact. And so when you leave, take this barley with you, and everyone will know that you came down to the threshing floor to bring home food for you and Naomi. So go home in the morning, in the light of day, and we'll take care of business. Ruth tells Naomi what's going on, and here's Naomi's response in the morning. Here's what she says at the end of chapter 3. Naomi says this, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. What a message. What a powerful moment. What a bold move for Ruth and Naomi. Here's the thing about you and me and our lives together. Our position is the same as Ruth and Naomi. We are in a position that we need a redeemer. We need someone who is willing and able, who has the means to take care of us and redeem us. Did you know that you need a redeemer? Did you know that? I'll be honest, most people I talk to, they don't start with that. When their life is not going the way they thought, they don't sit down with me and say, Phil, you know what I need. I need a redeemer. They don't say that. What they say is this. My life isn't turning out the way I thought. I don't understand what's going on. I, I, I thought I was doing everything right. Maybe they say it like Naomi did. I was full, but now I'm empty. There's some sin in my life I can't get rid of, and it just plagues me over and over and over again. I don't know what to do. Did you know that you needed a redeemer? Here's what a redeemer does. A redeemer takes what is broken, and they fix it. A redeemer takes that which was lost, and they buy it back. A redeemer takes everything that is tossed away by the world and makes it new again. A redeemer takes a life that is off the rails and brings it back in center. A redeemer takes a heart that is wayward and lost and brings it back to God again. Did you know that you need a redeemer? And I wonder this morning what bold move you might be prepared to make to bring your life back under the care the compassion, the forgiveness of God. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians, echoing these events of Ruth. In him, in Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood. He redeems us. He takes us and makes us new again. We have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Right now, I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. We're at this point in the story of Ruth where we make it very obvious as we watch this narrative unfold that God is at work, that even in your boring, everyday, go-to-work life, that he is at work, 
that he desires to be the Lord of your marriage. He desires to be the Lord in charge of your singleness, that he wants to redeem every relationship you're a part of, that he wants to lead you into green pastures, taking care of you, meeting your needs.